You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Proclamations. Hello, my radio friends. I'm so glad you've joined me today for another in the series, Give Me the Bible. I'm also glad to know of the ever-increasing listener base. My producer recently updated me on the number of people who've been phoning in and making contact via email. Many people have spoken to me personally how much they've been following the programs and have been enjoying them. It's encouraging for us to know that the programs are appreciated. So why don't you let us know your reactions by making contact as well? And another thing, why don't you invite your family and friends to listen? It's been extremely encouraging for us to know that some of you have committed your lives to Jesus and want to live in accordance with his will as a result of listening to these radio programs. Today's topic is proclamations. There have been many significant proclamations made during the history of the world. Some are very personal, like, I do, and I love you. Some are national, like, the war is ended, or prepare for extreme weather conditions. And then there are universal proclamations affecting all mankind, and we'll be considering some of these today. The first one is found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, where God, after he had created the earth and everything in it, spoke to Adam and Eve, the first people in their garden home. He said, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What a pity they were tricked by Satan to regard God's proclamation as untrue. Adam and Eve, although they lived for a long time, did die. And ever since, mankind has been subject to death. I know that the world is currently in a mess, but just imagine how much more of a mess it would be if sinful people did not die. The accumulated sins and sinners through the ages would be so great that the effect is almost unthinkable. In that sense, we should be grateful that God has pronounced death on anyone who sins. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 simply reiterates what God said in the beginning. And it says, 
the wages of sin is death. The default mode of mankind for thousands of years has been to be sinful and selfish. And because of that, as it's expressed in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sometimes I think to myself, what a pleasure life would be if I didn't have the tendency to do wrong. How nice it would be if I didn't have this battle going on within me, the battle between good and evil. But you know, God had to give mankind a choice. If not, we would all have been like robots, doing only what we would be programmed to do. But since God is a God of love, he had to give choice. Love has to include choice. Love cannot be expressed if there is no choice factor. Just to illustrate, how do I know I love my wife and that she loves me? If I force her to respect and obey me, She'd do it out of fear, and fear is not love, and force isn't love either. Instead, we choose to love each other. To love someone is to take a risk, that they will choose not to love you in return. And that's the risk God had to take. Of course, God wants us to respect and obey him. But because of who he is, he does not force obedience. God's people will be and are those who choose to honour and serve him, not those who are forced to do so. I've mentioned in a previous program that the doctrine held by some that the wicked people will be subject to being burnt for eternity in hell is an anathema. It's a false doctrine. Since God gave human beings the freedom to choose, and where some choose not to honour him, he'd be grossly unfair to subject them to torture for eternity for exercising the choice given to them in the first place. Now, proclamation number two. This proclamation follows when man sinned and God pronounced a curse and punishment for Adam, Eve, the earth and the serpent. It's found in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. There... God speaking to the serpent says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now really, God was addressing Satan through the serpent, and he was referring to the fact that there would be a conflict between good and evil. Satan 
would receive a permanent mortal bruise. And the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would be hurt. Now this reminds me of the brown snake-eating eagle found in West and Southern Africa. This bird has very scaly legs and mainly eats snakes. This eagle does not swoop down on the snakes and then rise up in the air and drop them from a height to kill them. Instead, it lands near the snake and attempts to grab its head in its beak. Obviously, the snake will take every opportunity to strike at the eagle, but because of the thick scales on the eagle's legs, not much harm is done. The eagle, on the other hand, when it gets a suitable opportunity, grabs the snake's head with its powerful beak and crushes it. End of snake and the beginning of the eagle's meal. The controversy between God and Satan will end in much the same way. Like the snake, Satan is a defeated foe. His head, so to speak, is crushed. Jesus won the victory over Satan on Calvary's cross. Jesus was hurt and died, but rose to life again. Satan, though, when he finally is destroyed, will remain dead. He will be non-existent for eternity. The third proclamation was made by an angel messenger sent from God to give good news to the inhabitants of the earth. The message was delivered to some shepherds minding their sheep at night out on the hills near the town of Bethlehem in what is now known as the country of Israel. Here's what the angel said. It's found in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. He said, For there is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. Many people of that time were waiting for an announcement like this, as they were waiting for the Saviour. Unfortunately, most of them could only think of the Saviour as a powerful leader who would be responsible for ridding their country of the Romans. But the Saviour, Jesus, was to do much more than getting rid of the Romans. He was the one who would save repentant sinners from the punishment for their sins. He was the one who paid the price of death for all mankind. He was the one who won the victory over the enemy, Satan. Christmas is the time of the year when the birth of Jesus comes especially into focus. But Christmas is much more than just about a birth. Christ's birth was a supernatural birth. 
Inasmuch as Jesus, God the Word, left heaven and went through all the processes in Mary's womb and was born and went through all the phases of development and growth and experiences as humans go through. So why did he do this? Two things. Firstly, to live life in the same condition as everyone else does. But Jesus never sinned and therefore was qualified to be our substitute. I call this being on a level playing field, that is, to have no advantages in defeating the devil. And secondly, Jesus did this as a mortal human being. If Jesus did what he did as a divine being, that is, as God, it would have been impossible for him to die. And if it had been impossible for him to die, then we would not have had a substitute to take the punishment for our sins, and we, therefore, would have no hope. The birth proclamation of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, was one of the greatest proclamations ever made on planet Earth. But there is another one of probably equal importance, and you can read it near the end of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. And we're going to stop here, and I'll read that, and that proclamation to you straight after the break. Crying in the chapel, the tears I shed were tears of joy. I know the meaning of content. Now I'm happy with the Lord. Just a plain and simple child. Down on your knees and pray 
fourth proclamation to which I referred just before the break comes from Matthew chapter 28 verses 5 and 6 it says but the angel answered and said to the women do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified he is not here for he has risen. Many people celebrate Jesus' birth. Many people reverently acknowledge and celebrate Jesus' death at Easter time, and, and that's good. But do you realize that Jesus' birth and death would be pointless unless he was resurrected? All the good that he did all the miracles he performed, all the teaching he made and the promises of forgiveness of sins and of getting eternal life would have no realisation unless Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus were not alive now, he would still be dead and everything he accomplished would be of no more worth than that of some philosopher or leader of a lost movement. He would be no more effective in saving lost humanity than a dead dog would. Dead leaders, although they might have done a lot of good, cannot save. But we have a risen Saviour who is now as our High Priest with the Father in Heaven ministering on our behalf. When we've done wrong and are convicted of our sins, we can ask for forgiveness. We don't have to go to some earthly priests who are also human beings like ourselves. Those priests have no merits of themselves to qualify them to forgive us. As sinful human beings, they're in the same boat as we are, condemned because they too have been affected by sin. We need someone qualified to forgive us and that's Jesus, the one subjected to the same conditions as we live under yet without sin. Sin cannot exist in the presence of our Heavenly Father and that's why and only why Jesus can be the one through whom we are forgiven. And Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 reminds us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. When I ask for forgiveness, this is what I see happening. My request for forgiveness is received in heaven. 
Perhaps God the Father asks around to see on what grounds the repentant sinner, in this case me, should be forgiven. Maybe he asks some angels why I should be forgiven, and perhaps the angels reply that, oh, he gave some money to charity, or that he did a good deed and helped a neighbour move a cupboard or something. And the father would then reply, but that's not good enough to forgive him. And then Jesus steps forward and holds out his hands, still retaining the scars where he was pierced when he was nailed to the cross. And he answers the father and says, Father, I took his punishment for him. Forgive him because of me and what I did for him. I loved him so much that I paid the penalty for him. Yes, says the father, that's enough. He is forgiven because of you. What wonderful love. Love that was and is undeserved and unmerited. That's how much God loves us. Sometimes when I think about what God has done for us, and for me in particular, I have a feeling of awe, of wonder and gratefulness that although I have nothing to offer God in what I am or in what I do, our beautiful Saviour has achieved for us what we are unable to do. And on those grounds, we can be forgiven. But, and it's a giant but, none of this would have ever happened if Jesus remained in the grave. He is not here. He has risen, has to be one of the best, one of the most important proclamations of all time. Before we consider the last proclamation for the program today, have you ever wondered what can be done about the problems that currently exist in the world in these present times? We have environmental problems, war, terrorism, disregard of human rights, overpopulation, crime, violence, political instability, and so on and so on. Many thought leaders do not see any remedy for the world's problems, and some have predicted that the future will be far worse than the present, leading to eventual total degradation and collapse. But God has a plan, a rescue mission, that will involve a clean sweep. The earth will eventually be cleansed with fire and then made new. But before that happens, Jesus will come to this earth again and take all those who have accepted his forgiveness and have lived lives honouring him back to heaven. Here's what he said. It's found in John 14, 1 to 3. And this proclamation was made to the disciples 
but it applies to us today. He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This proclamation has been the hope of Christians down through the centuries. It is the hope, no, not just the hope, but assurance that I have of living eternally in the presence of God. What could be better than that? But won't heaven be boring, some people ask. No, no, no and no. We have no idea how wonderful eternal life will be. The Apostle Paul, writing about eternal life and of being in the presence of God, said this, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. He said, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Do you think this is worth waiting for? You bet it is. This is exciting. Life on earth is only a faint shadow of what life will be in the presence of God for eternity. And it's my plan to be there. How about you? Do you have a plan? Will these major proclamations make any difference to you? Does your plan include eternity? It's my hope that you will give serious consideration to what I've shared from God's Word with you today and make it your business, your plan, to spend eternity in extreme bliss. But you know, God has done everything for you to have it all. The outcome depends on your personal response, your choice to God's call to you. I hope to see you there, where we will share the joys of eternity together. And on that note, we must stop today. May God bless you as you make your decision to serve him, won't you? Until next time, this is Len signing off and I wish you joy and faith and peace.